Does anybody here take notes during the sermon? Anybody take notes? Okay, my wife does. It's been announced. That's the only one. All right. Got a couple, okay. At the top of your note page, you can put the word wow. Wow. Because my sermon is a warning on wolves. Wow. Got it? Can't forget it now. Matthew chapter 7, in verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? By the way, I'm reading the New King James. You may have an ESV, NIV, KJV, ABC, XYZ. I don't know. There's so many now, right? So I'm reading the New King James Version <clears throat> just because I grew up in the King James. That's what I use. Um, so if you see some differences, that's why. For 17, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree bear good fruit. This is called the root to the fruit principle. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. As I was preparing for today, I was astounded by the amount of uh, text in the New Testament alone, not just forgetting the old for a moment. In the New Testament alone, how many passages refer to false teachers? I mean, it, it, it was truly astounding. I basically went through the New Testament this week, and they're kind of everywhere. Let me think. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Uh, there's a few I didn't write down. Probably at least 20, maybe more. Some of them very long, like in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, the entire chapter. Almost the entire uh, book of Jude. Now, Jude's only one chapter, but still. Jude is basically devoted to that, where he tells us to contend for the faith because men were creeping in unawares, that's the King James, but secretly bringing in destructible heresies or false doctrine. Many, many texts in the New Testament. So, Jesus says here to beware. Now, in the early church, they had doctrinal problems from the beginning. They were fighting Gnosticism, they were fighting asceticism, they were fighting docetism, and, and different uh, problems. But we today are fighting sometimes the same problems in different form, but sometimes we're fighting new problems. So this, this exhortation to beware was not just for the early church, but it's for the church for all time. And it's for us. Did I drop something? I sure did. <clears throat> I don't need notes, do I? Nah. Nah. So here Jesus says to us to beware. Beware of false prophets. And so he basically assumes, or really in a way assures us, that there will be, there will be those who come in the name of the Lord, but they are not of him. In fact, Paul warns in the book of Acts, chapter 20, 
that grievous wolves would come in to the church. But not only come into the church, he warns that there would be grievous wolves that arise from within the church. False prophets or false teachers, as we would call them today, well, actually we have both, (laughs) are not a possibility, they are a certainty. They will come. They are here. That's why we should not be so naive as to accept every prophet, preacher, evangelist, teacher who comes with a KJV Bible or a special word from the Lord or a new gimmick. The, the, the thing I love is, is every sermon they introduce is this will transform your life. This is the message. This is the word of the Lord. Th- this is it. I have it. I have the word. I have the anointing. I am it. Didn't a uh, well-known uh, preacher write a book called The Power of I Am? You know him? Joel Osteen? Yeah. Indeed, we learned from Deuteronomy 13 that God specifically permits false teachers or false prophets to arise amongst his people for the express purpose of testing his people. He wants to test them to see if they will be faithful to the Lord, if they will love the Lord and obey the Lord. And so the Lord permits these men and now, of course, women to arise to test his people. Now, we live in what's called an open society, right? Um, and so in our society, we, we can be, uh, uh, we could say, attacked by the wolves, not just through the pulpit under which we sit, but through the radio, through the TV, and now to that glorious invention called the Internet. Right? The internet. And so the greater the freedom, the greater the openness, the greater the need for discernment. So when when I use the word prophet, I'm using it in a broader sense today, which would include teachers, although there is a narrower sense. I'm just noting that at the beginning. So first of all here, we have a call to discernment. Jesus says, beware. This means that we are to be, uh, we are to discern, we are to try, we are to judge, we are to discriminate. Now, I know those last two words are offensive to people, to use the word judge or to use the word discriminate, but they're biblical words and they're biblical ideas. John tells us in 1 John 4 that we are to try the spirits whether they are of God. And that word try means to to analyze, to test, and as a result of the investigation, if you will, to discern that whether whether what what we're hearing is really true or not. And John even says that even in his day, there were many antichrists in his day that have gone out into the world. Now, if the early church needed that, how much more do we, right? How much more do we need to be discerning when we are surrounded by many voices coming at us from from the radio, 
the internet, social media, all of the things that come at us. And uh, so we're told to <clears throat> be a people of discernment who are willing to investigate, discern, try, and prove whether what we're hearing is true. Now you may be asking yourself, how do we know it's true? This is how we know it's true, right? Because the rule and standard of our faith and practice is not an anointed leader. The rule of our faith and practice is the word of God, which lives and abides forever, we're told in the word. So I understand that talking about things like being discriminating and and, and such can be uh, grating to people's ears in our day because we, we think of ourselves as a tolerant society. But we are told in the word not to tolerate false teachers. Not to tolerate false teaching. So we need discernment. We are to beware. But secondly, we need discernment because Jesus tells us here to beware of false prophets. Why? Because they come in sheep's clothing. What does this mean? Well, it means that the false teacher looks like the real thing. That's the whole point of the, the uh, what would you call it? A similitude of whatever. So the, the false teacher looks like a sheep, but in fact is not a sheep. Now, Jesus uses this. So, so because of that, it can be very difficult to tell the false from the true, which is why we need to ratchet up our discernment, if you will. Now, Jesus refers to these wolves as in sheep's clothing, which means they are deceptive. They are deceptive. How is it that they deceive? Well, the the main way they deceive is they will often use biblical words with unbiblical meanings. And so you hear the words like grace or love or other words, biblical words, and even biblical concepts, you think, but new meanings are imported, and often these meanings are imported gradually in such a way that you wouldn't realize. Now, you have to remember something. Jesus is telling us here, by saying that these wolves look like sheep, they don't come in the pulpit and say, good morning, I'm a false teacher. That's not how it works. They don't announce it. Some of them don't even know it, in my opinion. Some do, some don't. Because Timothy refers to them and he says they are deceived and deceiving. Some of them are deceived, and I think that they really believe what they say they're teaching, but I think others are actually um, not deceived and they know exactly what they're doing, and they're, they're using godliness for gain, which means they're using religion for profit, Right? So it could be one or the other. In any case, it is often difficult to tell at first sight whether what you're dealing with is a false teacher or not, or with what you're dealing is a false teaching or not. 
that even makes it more confusing. Because something I've noticed over the years, I'm a little bit older than some of you. I see these young people here. Um, and that is that you, there, are, there are men who started out well, but then as you follow the trajectory of their careers, you see that they start getting off. And so they've gained a, a name, if you will, in the evangelical church. They have a certain amount of recognition. They've written some books. They have, they have a broader platform than just their home pulpit, if you will. And then, lo and behold, they start teaching things which really are foreign to Scripture, which makes the, the evaluation process even more confusing because you would think, you think to yourself, well, surely not so-and-so wouldn't be teaching such-and-such. So-and-so's, well, that's a well-known evangelical. That well-known evangelical certainly wouldn't be teaching heresy or false doctrine, uh, but in fact, you find out, yes, they are. And so, again, the need for discernment in this matter of false teachers and false doctrine. Paul says, when referring to them, that they, he says that it's no wonder that they, these false, in his case, false apostles, transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. He says it's no wonder because Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Rarely does the devil just show up and say, hey, I'm the evil one, I'm here to destroy you. No, it doesn't work that way. He dresses right, he smiles a lot, he even talks about Jesus. But in fact, it's the evil one at work. And so the, the false teacher and the, the, the false teaching can be very deceptive and at times hard to discern. But Jesus refers to them as wolves. <clears throat> the obvious purpose for using that term is that they are destructive. Now, he doesn't say they're goats, right? A goat can be in the flock and like, you know, tear among the wheat. But you don't need to worry about the goat. The goat doesn't eat the sheep. But the wolf eats the sheep. So beware of the wolf because the ultimate, uh, whether it's the intentional design or not, the ultimate result of the wolf is that the wolf will destroy the sheep. And again, repeatedly, as we look throughout the New Testament, I won't take time to do this this morning, but you look, if you look at all of the the warnings, how often the word destructive comes up. They're destructive heresies. And so the, the, the net effect of this teaching is to destroy lives, destroy families, destroy churches, and ultimately destroy the soul forever. So today, many Christians are... They're um, disillusioned, they're wounded, they're even embittered because they have sat under false teaching, they've imbibed false teaching. They pin their hopes on a false prophecy, a prophetic word, a, a vain vision of an anointed leader, if you will, and then reality comes crashing down and they feel betrayed and they feel betrayed by God 
and by his supposed messenger. Here's what Jeremiah says. He says, many shepherds have destroyed my vineyard. They have trampled, they have trampled my portion, God speaking, my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. And Ezekiel says, when he's denouncing false shepherds, that they scatter the sheep, and those who rule over them do so with force and cruelty. In addition to the the harm that is done to the church, we know that um, these false teachers almost always bring scandal, a broader scandal, and shame on the name of Jesus Christ in the public square. We've seen this with so many high-profile pastors and preachers who you find out are embezzling money or they are sleeping with women, etc. Matter of fact, those are the two main problems you usually see. Money and women. And, and so then the world laughs. The world mocks Jesus because of the false teachers. So we are therefore to be aware, we are to evaluate and judge those who claim to be God's spokespeople. Well, how do we know? Well, Jesus says this in Matthew 7. He says, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Now, the most obvious fruit is the person themselves, the fruit of their lives, if you will. Now, the difficulty here is that um, you don't know the radio preacher. You don't, you pick up a book that looks good and you start reading it, hmm, this looks good, it got published by a Christian publisher, I guess everything in here is pretty sound. You don't know the people, so you can't evaluate the fruit of their lives. I mean, so the best you could do is maybe do some research and try to find out and I encourage such, such a thing, okay? Um, because the more that I've researched some high-profile pro, high evangelicals, the more I'm actually shocked at some of the things I learned about their lifestyle, their multimillion-dollar homes and their various practices they have in their church and how they run their church. It's fairly shocking to me. I shouldn't be shocked. I, I continue to be shocked, and I shouldn't be. Um, but it's, it's more difficult um, today because you don't know. You don't know the, the people that are putting out the YouTube videos and writing the books or putting out the podcasts who are, quote, teaching you, or, or should I say, the people you are listening to. And so it's very difficult to evaluate that fruit, although in the, when you are able, you should. You should evaluate that fruit. It's very important. Um, but the second thing we can we can and ought to uh, evaluate is the fruit of doctrinal purity. The fruit of doctrinal purity. In other words, the teachings of those who claim to be speaking for God must accord with the written revelation of the Bible. Let me say it again. Those who claim to be speaking for God, their teaching must accord with the written revelation of the Bible. 
And I got one amen from my wife on that. I mean, if the Bible is not our standard, then tell me what's your standard? If, if you're not evaluating what you're hearing, whether it's from the pulpit, the radio, the internet, the news, or whatever, if, if this is not the standard by which you evaluate, what is the standard? What do you offer in its place? As a Christian, as an evangelical Christian, what standard can we offer if not the Word of God, right? That is our standard. That's the lens by which we are to look at things. And that's the lens by which we evaluate. Not, do I like it? Not, does it sound good? But, does it accord with the Word of God? This is our standard. So we need to evaluate everything we hear by the Scripture. So I want to mention today, by the way, that was my introduction. No, I'm just kidding. Um, When we talk about the fruit of what is being taught, I want to mention today some areas that I think the modern church, the modern evangelical church, needs to be uh, discerning about. Okay. Now, a clarification before I go on. The word church almost means anything now. Okay, so it's like we say the church. Well, what's the church, right? I'm talking to evangelical Christians. And by evangelical Christians, I mean people who claim to believe this is their book. They claim Jesus died, was buried, broke from dead, ascended into heaven. They claim that his death was an atonement for sin. They claim that Jesus is coming back. And they used to claim that there, that there would be a final judgment with a heaven and a hell. These are fundamental, basic, biblical concepts. And all evangelicals would abide by it. But one of the hallmarks of the evangelical is the atoning work of Jesus Christ and the word of God is being fully inspired. Now, the mainline denominations, well, they gave up a long time ago. I'm talking to evangelicals. Now, I, don't, I actually have more respect for a person that says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the Bible. Now, I think it's insane. But that's better than saying, I believe the Bible, and then teaching contrary to it. Get what I'm saying? I mean, just say where you stand, right? And so, if you believe it, believe it. And if you don't, say you don't. So, Some of the things we need to be discerning about today. First, the Bible itself. What is the the teacher or prophet saying about the word of God itself? Now, there are two basic um, problems here. One is a denial of the word, and the second one is what I call a neglect of the word. Let me explain. The denial of the word. Now, in some supposedly Christian churches, mainly the the mainline denominations, if you will, their denial of the word is complete. They really don't, they won't say the Bible is inspired. They don't even make a pretense to claim that this is the final authority in what they believe. 
They just don't believe it anymore. Okay? I've told you the story, but some of you maybe uh, that are newer here haven't heard it, but I'm going to tell it again. Uh, my brother used to attend a, de a denomination which was going liberal and is now fully gone. And this is in maybe 20 years ago. They were having a, a discussion in their church about whether or not they should have uh, recognized gay partnerships in their church. <clears throat> well, so they had a church meeting, and he went to the church meeting, and people gave their opinions about this and that. And so he raised his hand, and he was given the microphone, he got on the stage, and he didn't say any commentary. He just read Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Are you familiar with it? Okay, well, if not, read it. The people in the church booed him. They booed him off the stage for reading the Bible. That is a total denial. You get what I'm saying? Now, I'm not saying the, the preacher wouldn't get up on Sunday and cherry-pick a verse here or there, but in reality, this book does not have authority anymore for those Christians. I'm using the scare quotes because I wouldn't call them Christians, but they insist on using the name. So that, that is a, a, a problem, obviously. The Bible has always been under attack, and it continues to be in our own day. But more subtly is not the total denial it's what I call a partial denial, if you will, of the Bible. And this is where we get into the evangelical church. And so we're told that uh, parts of the Bible are not true, parts of the Bible have errors, parts of the Bible are mythology, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so we, 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 one, of the, one of the catchphrases is, the Bible is culturally conditioned. Okay. So the, the early chapters of Genesis that have the creation and fall account, those are, are really missed because that's the way ancient people wrote stories. And they'll compare it to the epic of Gilgamesh and other ancient creation stories and say, say, see, Genesis is just like that. It's really just a myth. It's not history. Or Romans 1, which I referred to. That's explained away by saying that, yes, Paul said that, but Paul was a Pharisee. Because of his background, Paul was, was a, a homophobe. And uh, we have to take that into account. In other words, Paul is in error, right? That's what's being said. Paul is wrong. <laughs> Paul is wrong. Well, pretty much, that's what, three-fourths of the New Testament? Throw that out. Paul is wrong. The, 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 um, <clears throat> the amazing thing about this is that, you know, when people, uh, theologians and pastors try to explain away what I would call uh, the, the hard text, in other words, the text which really cut against the grain of our culture, the amazing thing is no matter how they try to explain it, whether it's mythology or cultural conditioning or whatever, the amazing thing is that this approach, are you listening? Yeah. I need your attention, this is important. This approach always leads to an interpretation that is congenial to the prevailing cultural ethos. 
Always. That is, it always, it always ends up with an interpretation which is consistent with what used to be called liberalism. It is always contrary to the traditional interpretation. It is always contrary to the established creeds. Always. I have never heard a preacher get up and say, well, here, here, this, was, this was culturally conditioned, yada, yada, yada. Therefore, and the result be more conservative than the standard interpretation. Never heard that happen. Well, what does that tell you? Well, that tells you the scripture is being manipulated to fit the current culture. It's called being acculturated. The church is being acculturated. Remember, Jesus said you are in the world, but not of it. That's being of it. It is a way to accommodate the culture, it, even though Scripture clearly is, is not accommodating to certain things, right? It's not accommodating. So this, this is a technique by which to bring in worldly ideas into the church. Now, another problem we have with the, with the way the Bible's treated is not just denial, whether it's total or partial, but neglect. Neglect. This is a common problem. You can say you believe the Bible's fully, it's authoritative, it's God's word, it's, it, this is our standard, you can say that, but never preach on anything that would offend anybody. Never preach on anything that might be controversial. Well, that's convenient, right? But that's what's happening. So, preachers just avoid things they know are contrary to the, to the uh, kind of the prevailing winds of the culture. So they don't deny the Bible straight up, but they neglect to teach the whole counsel of God. That's the problem. We see this on the, the abortion issue, which I'll mention further in a minute. We see this on biblical marriage. I mean, look, I'm just going to say it straight up. Read Ephesians chapter 5, where it talks about marriage, and it talks about headship and submission. Just read it. And you know what? Many pastors won't read it. They won't read it in their churches. They're terrified to say the word submission. They're terrified. I remember, you know, this is probably 20 years ago when the Baptist church put out a statement that ended up in, you know, the New York Times or somewhere about, about basically, you know, their view of the biblical family. They talked about male headship, although I don't think they use the word headship because God forbid. And I don't even think they use the word submission, God forbid, even though they're in the Bible. So they use the words like, you know, male leadership and the wife is to be responsive, you know, whatever. You know, you know, you get it? You get it? Everything's massage. Let's massage it all. And there was an uproar. An uproar. How dare, how dare, how dare the church say such things? 
hey, guys, I didn't write the Bible. And the pastor's job is not to rewrite the Bible. His job is to explain and clarify and declare what the Bible says. That's his job. But today we have men pleasers who are accommodating false doctrine by not addressing the issues that need to be addressed. And they do it through neglect. And when they say they believe the Bible is inspired and it's really true and authoritative, they mean that. But the problem is they don't preach that I heard a sermon by Andy Stanley, well-known evangelical guy. Books published by evangelical publishers. It was one of the most atrocious things I've ever heard. Atrocious. And if you just YouTube Andy Stanley unhitching the Old Testament, you'll find the videos. Oh my, it's deplorable. Now, I shouldn't have been shocked. I don't know if I was shocked. I wasn't shocked. Because Jesus, you know, there's so many warnings. I wasn't shocked. I was appalled by the things he said. Um, calls creation a myth. Says the Old Testament, nothing in the Old Testament. Nothing in the Old Testament applies to the Christian. Nothing. Not the Ten Commandments. Nothing. Don't put up monuments of the Ten Commandments in the public square. Nothing. They said, we're in the New Covenant, and that means the New Testament. But, but really, what we really need to focus on is just the words of Jesus. So we whittled our Bible down to just the Gospels. But even there, he says things which contradict Jesus. It, it's astounding. He said, he said, you know, in the Old Testament, when people sinned, it, God responded with, with wrath. By the New Testament, God responds by being grieved. Doesn't that, doesn't that just sound so like evangelical psychobabble poop? <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, it is just the culture. It is just the culture. It's just like seeping. It's, it's reeking out of this thing. Well, I can show you a bunch. You want to take the time? I can show you a bunch of verses in the New Testament. It talks about the wrath of God. Paul begins Romans. The gospel, the gospel book, the gospel epistle. Here's the gospel. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Whoa, that's the New Testament. Jesus, John 3, John 3, 16. I bet many of you can quote it, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only bad son. Well, just read a verse down or two. And this is the condemnation... That men love darkness more than light. Well, we don't want to read that verse. The end of John 3. John 3. Remember, John 3.16 is in John 3. And we like John 3.16. For God so loved the world. The end of John 3, John says, now some commentators think that actually Jesus is speaking through the whole chapter. Others think John comes in after you know, verse 20 or 21. Anyway, it says, those who believe in the Son have life. 
and those who do not believe, the wrath of God abides on them. How in the world does a man get in the pulpit and say, in the Old Testament, God is wrathful, and in the New Testament, he is just grieved? Now, the thing that was shocking to me wasn't that he said it, because, I, because we're told that false teachers will arise. The shocking thing to me is that people sat there and they didn't get up and walk out. Anybody who knows their Bible would have been appalled by what he said and should have gotten up and walked out. And that was just one error. There were so many. It was, it was quite, a, quite a feat, actually. I have to applaud the ingenuity. But the people sat there, laughed at his jokes, just having a good time. Heresy, 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 heresy. Really an amazing thing. Thousands of people. But sadly, that kind of thing is being replicated throughout our churches in America. So you just don't talk about things that people don't want to hear. You don't talk about sin. You don't talk about God's chastening. You don't talk about um, judgment. You don't talk about Hell, you don't, you don't talk about anything that's negative. We, we can't take negativity. I mean, you know what I mean? We need, a, a, we need a coloring book and a safe space. Right? Church is going to be a safe space. So you can't say anything that will upset anybody. You tracking or not? So neglect is a huge problem. You just don't talk about it, even though it's right there staring in your face. And you know how, or you know why people who are teaching false doctrine, you know, you know why they get away with this? It's because the people sitting in the pew don't know their Bibles. They don't know their Bibles. Now, they'll know some verses here and there. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. That feels good. For God's love of the world, that feels good. They know the, maybe the comfy verses. They don't know their Bible because they don't read their Bible. Every word of it, over and over and over again. They don't know their Bibles. And if the people sitting there that day when he gave that sermon knew their Bibles, they would have got up and walked out. But they didn't because they don't know the Word of God. That's a huge problem in our churches today. People do not know the word. And what is the job of the pastor? It is to teach the word. And Paul said to teach that he, by example, was telling us that he taught the whole counsel of God. The comfy verses and the disturbing verses. All of it. That's what we need, all of it. So the Bible, how someone treats the Bible, how someone uh, uses the Bible, is key to discerning where they're coming from. A second area I'll mention is the divine image, the imago dei it's called in Latin. Okay? The, the divine image of God in man is under assault in our day. 
it is under assault in every conceivable way. And, and the most obvious example is the issue of abortion, right? To kill unborn children who are created in the image of God is the most blatant assault, not just on the unborn, it's the most blatant assault on God himself. Because they are created in him, his image. And you talk about neglect of the Bible, this is where it is seen starkly. The majority of evangelical churches still today, the majority, and I don't mean 51%. There isn't a hard number, but it's a large majority. The majority of evangelical Bible-believing churches today still refuse to address from a pulpit the issue of abortion. And by still, I mean 48 years and 61 million abortions after Roe v. Wade, still there is silence. And that silence is lying. That silence is a false witness. That silence is false teaching. That silence is saying the unborn are not made in God's image. And that is a lie. And so they teach falsely by neglect. And, and this, their silence bears witness to their error and their falseness. Because we are told in the word of God that each one of us is knit in our mother's womb by God himself. And we are created in his image and because of that we have value. We have value because God created us. No other reason. Not our good works, not our good looks, not our brains, nothing. But we bear the divine image, even in our fallen state. Abortion, in some ways, is kind of the root. Because as I said in a previous sermon not long ago, that if a society condones and even endorses, as we're endorsing now through our current administration, if we endorse abortion, then we are capable of anything. If we will kill the most vulnerable, then what else might we do? Right? So the divine image is under attack through abortion. But another uh, area is what I call the exaltation of the self. The exaltation of the self. Now this will seem like the opposite because we're celebrating who we are, right? We're celebrating our humanness. We're celebrating the divine image. But the problem is, what we're, what we're getting told is that uh, man, mankind, humankind, is basically good. Good people get to go to heaven with Jesus because of their goodness. Or, or God doesn't send anybody to hell because God is loving, whatever. But basically, we, we've, we've heard for a generation now how good we are, and we've been, been uh, have steady diet of self-esteem books, right? Um, human potential, self-development, all of these things are different names for them. We have the Enneagram. We have many things. And the focus is not God. The focus is the self. And this has been documented by both Christian and even unchristian writers, sociologists, thinkers, how the modern, especially Westerner, is 
absorbed with the idea of their own ego. But this is also in the church. And so uh, we see it with people like Joel Osteen, who has built an empire on self-love, self-esteem, self-help, if you will. And, uh, and, of course, many others. The result of this kind of thing, which is everywhere, really, in the church now, is that it, it clearly teaches the false doctrine of salvation because if I'm basically good, God's not going to send me to hell, right? I mean, I'm good. Now, it can also produce an attitude of works righteousness on the part of, of some people. Whereas the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith, right? Not, we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our own righteousness because we don't have any. We're saved by the righteousness of God imputed or given to us through Jesus Christ. For God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Christ, right? We receive his righteousness. He gets our sin on the cross. That's the great transfer. Um, so, so this, this self-focus leads to um, either salvation by works mentality or what I call the, the imperial self. The imperial self. And the imperial self judges everything, not through the lens of scripture, but through the lens of the ego. Do I like it? Do I approve? Does it make me feel comfortable? Go down the line. You understand what I'm saying? And, and let me tell you, friends, we are so surrounded by this that even those of us who know it's wrong and will, will say it's wrong, we still fall prey to it. And I'm putting, including myself. We live in a profoundly self-absorbed and arrogant culture. And people will refuse to believe the truth for no other reason than they say so. Which means that they are the final authority. We know from scripture that we're not basically good. Jesus tells us, I just want to look at one other verse of Jesus. People say, well, just, let's just read Jesus and everything will be fine. Look at Mark chapter um, 7. Now the context here is Jesus is having a, a debate, if you will, with the Pharisees about observing the tradition of the elders, the Jewish elders. And they, have, they had various traditions, non-biblical traditions, about washing hands and cleaning pots and pans and different things. And they criticized Jesus for not following these traditions. And he says, um, verse 8, For laying aside the command, commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men the washing of pitchers, cups, many other such things you do. Notice, laying aside the commandment of God, holding the tradition of men. This is what I mean by neglect. You just, the word of God's moved over, and 
the, the, the current tradition is put in its place. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And then he gives an example of that, okay, which we're not going to go into. But then he goes on and he says in verse um, 14, when he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand there's nothing that enters a man from outside, meaning entering through his mouth, that can defile him, but the things which come out of him, these are the things which defile man. Because this was the debate they were having, because the, the, the Pharisees were saying, well, if you don't eat with the right, the pots and pans cleaned in the right way, and your hands had to be washed in a certain way, then you're going to be defiled. He's saying, he's saying no. Verse 21, let's skip down there. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within a man and defile him. How is it that when survey after survey is done of beliefs in the evangelical church, a majority of evangelicals say people are basically good? They don't know their Bible. They do not know their Bible. So in spite of the, well, and it's a result of this, a generation of, of self-esteem, self-love, self, 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 right? Uh, for the sake of time, I don't think I can go on. I wanted to mention the issue of marriage and the issue of race, which I, I will do next week if I'm allowed back. I may not be after today. I don't know. <laughs> those, those, those things happen, you know. But we had a change in plans. Um, but I do want you to turn to Romans 1, and then we're going to close, because I've gone way too long today. I apologize. Go to, I mean, not Romans 1. Go to Romans 12. Since we've talked about, you know, the, the, the real point of this sermon is not to, to you know, um, it's not really to be negative about Anybody, although in a way it's a, it's a negative sermon because it's critiquing, it's evaluating, right? But it, it's for your benefit to be discerning so you do not imbibe false teaching which will be destructive to you. <clears throat> so I'm going to say more about this if I come back, if I'm allowed back, about how we develop the sermon, but I just want to say, close with this. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable or logical worship or service. And do not, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or discern or try what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
Now, the thing I want to point out here, the, now the obvious thing that, that grabs our attention is, you know, this contrast being conformed and transformed. Well, how do we do that? Well, he says, by renewing your mind. But I want you to notice in verse 1 something he says here that's really foundational to, to, to the entire Christian enterprise. The entire effort to be conformed to Jesus hinges on one word in that verse. And it is the word present. Present. And if you read Romans, you find that word is used over and over, or the word yield, depending on your translation. This is a call to consecration. Or you could say it's a call to dedication. It is a call, and we sang it today, I surrender all. It is a call to surrendering your right to yourself and surrendering it to God. The reason we, the problems we have with not growing and the problems we have with listening to things we shouldn't be, you know, taking in is rooted in the failure to be fully surrendered. That is the foundational issue. You can even read your Bible a lot. But if you're not fully surrendered, you will not see what God wants you to see. Because your lack of surrender will hinder your ability to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit. This is why in, in uh, Proverbs 1.7, it says, common translation is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The word beginning there, you know what it can be translated? <clears throat> and what it probably should be translated? The fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. And if we don't have that fear of the Lord, we don't have the foundation, we can't build the the proper superstructure on top of it. That fear of the Lord is not is not a fear where we're, you know, oh I can't talk to God because he hates me. That's not that's not it is a profound reverence. Profound reverence. It is a desire not to offend him. It is a recognition of God's full authority over your life. And that means that when we present ourselves to the Lord, we're not just giving him part of ourselves, we're giving him our entire selves. Paul says, present your bodies, then he says, renew your mind. What else is left? He's got your mind and he's got your body. He's got you. All of you. And when we hold back from from the Lord, then we make ourselves vulnerable. Okay? That's the thing. We then become vulnerable because we're, we're not fully surrendered to him. We're not fully under his authority. James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee. Submit yourselves to God. And if we are not submitted to God, we make ourselves vulnerable to the evil one. So this is not just about 
reading the Bible a lot, although that's profoundly important. It's not about even reading good doctrinal books. That's important. But it's deeper than that. This is a call for your own protection and your own safety. It is a call to be fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Those who run into it are safe. Not those who have one foot in it. Or they have their body in, but the head's sticking out the window. No, you're in or you're out. And if you halt between two opinions, you are vulnerable to deception. Surrendering means your mind, your heart, your soul, your feelings, your likes, your dislikes. It means everything. And I'll be honest, there's things in the Bible I don't like. My flesh doesn't like them. But I'm not God. He is our authority, and his word is our rule. Amen? Bow our heads and pray. Lord, I pray that this word today would be received as it was intended that it's a warning out of concern and even out of love for the welfare of the sheep. I pray, Lord, that you would give each one here ears to hear what your word and your spirit is saying. our heads bowed and eyes closed, I feel like God is, is really wants us to um, surrender. Surrender doesn't mean you clean up your act and then come to the Lord and surrender. <laughs> surrender means you come to the Lord in whatever condition you were in, and then you say, okay, clean me up, fix me, heal me, restore me, whatever, whatever it may be based on your condition. No one loves you more than your Heavenly Father. I know the word Father is tricky these days because many people have been raised without fathers or they've been raised with abusive fathers. But look at Jesus, who's the express image of the Father, and see his compassion for the poor, the sick, the broken, the hungry. There's no greater love than the love of Jesus for you. You need not fear surrendering to Jesus. He will save you in every sense of that word. That means he will heal you, restore you. He will do. He will just work miracles in your life and in your heart because he loves you. 